0: Good morning. All right, Mark 11. That's where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 27. All right. So in this passage, we're going to be introduced to the Sanhedrin, or at least the delegation from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin uh, was a group of 71 people. It was comprised of three groups, the chief priests and the scribes, and then the elders. They were the ruling class of Israel so they had complete control of religious life in Israel. They set the rules and they had the power to enforce the rules. They also had a significant amount of political power. They were the liaison between the the Roman occupying government there in Israel and the Jewish people. These were the people that were in charge uh, that Jesus is talking to today. Um, they were also the ones that were in charge of all of the temple activities. Uh, this is the first time in Mark where we're introduced to a delegation from the Sanhedrin. But it's not the last time. There's one other time in Mark where we see the Sanhedrin, and that's on the day of Jesus' trial. Here they're gonna ask Jesus a question about his authority. And remember it's based in what, what we read last two weeks ago with Pastor Chris. Jesus had gone into the temple. He had turned over the tables. He had stopped the business from happening. And he quoted Isaiah. He preached from Isaiah 56 saying, My house will be a house of prayer for all of the nations. Do we remember this? And you've made it a den of robbers, he says and Pastor Chris explained to us that you know the term that's probably in your Bibles right next to this section you know the little italic kind of header that says cleansing of the temple might not be the best way to describe what's going on here Jesus isn't like renewing or cleaning up the temple bringing it back to some former point he's recreating the temple he's bringing in a whole new religious order the new covenant the temple's no longer going to be the central place of worship so today, in our passage, the Sanhedrin, or a delegation from the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus and he says, They say, Who do you think you are to say things like this? All right, so that's the conflict. And Jesus, is, instead of accepting this question, is going to answer with a counter question. He's going to say, Was the baptism of John from man or from God? And this is what we read in Mark 1. This delegation is going to refuse to answer this question. That's the first part of this passage. And then we get into chapter 12 where there's a parable that deals directly with the same question. But it's also, we're also going to see some judgment of the Sanhedrin rule over Israel embedded in that parable. This also is kind of an outlier. This is the only parable in the book of Mark outside of chapter 4. So we should be alert to something's going on here. Why did Mark put this parable right here and all others in chapter four? So let's start with the authority. So the Sanhedrin delegation, as I mentioned, that's who Jesus is talking to. Jesus was saying that the temple will soon have served its purpose and that the final true sacrifice for sin will be made. This is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. That the new covenant is commencing and that the promise made so many years before to Abraham that through Abraham's seed the nations would be blessed. That new covenant is beginning. The spirit is coming and access to the father, Yahweh, is opening. He's saying that God, Yahweh, gives him the authority to do this. So Yahweh, you know, at whose side Jesus stood at the creation of the world. When the spirit hovered over the water and God said let there be light Jesus was there, his father that's who's giving him the authority to do this and he's also I think saying to the Sanhedrin the delegation that if they could consider the implications of this truth, if they would seriously consider their motivation for trying to clinch on to the power that they had over the temple and they would repent and submit that they would see the majesty of what's taking place here but if they won't, if they won't deal honestly with themselves, then nothing Jesus can say to them is going to change their mind about whose authority they're going to submit to. Jesus Christ of Nazareth or their own authority as the overseers of the temple. I think there's a, an undercurrent here in this passage. It's kind of like a final invitation for them to believe. So let's go ahead and dive in. So we're in Mark 11. If you're not there, we're starting in Mark 11, verse 27 and they came again to Jerusalem and, how, and as he was walking in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him okay so this as Chris mentioned this is the Herodian temple it's immense it's grand it's the political and kind of theological hub of the country In the Jewish tradition this is where God meets with man And uh, this is Jesus' third day in Jerusalem. We've got a couple of characters laid out in this first verse. We have they. So they is Jesus and the disciples. Um, Then we have the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These are the three groups that comprise the Sanhedrin. It's not the whole Sanhedrin. That's 70, 70 or so, 71 people. So this is just a delegation. And if you look at the corresponding story in Luke, we know that there are, there's a crowd around him. So there are, there are people observing this, this question and answer go down. So what does the delegation want with Jesus? So verse 28. And they, the delegation, said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? So this is referring to Jesus' sovereign freedom and command it seems over things that only God should have freedom and command over. Jesus is taking liberty that nobody else should be taking and they're asking him about this. And, and there's a few times this word authority is used in Mark. So let's, let's kind of do, do a little bit of background to, to remember all of these things. So in Mark 1, 28, uh, to, uh, Mark 1, 21 to 28, this is when Jesus was in Capernaum And it was the Sabbath and he was teaching in the synagogue there. You guys remember this? He was teaching everybody and they said he taught them, everybody that listened said that Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the scribes of the Sanhedrin and then if you recall there was this guy that had a a spirit in him and he's yelling out he's demon possessed and he's yelling out what have you to do with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the holy one of God this man is saying that's demon possessed and Jesus exercises this, this demon and the people say what is this it's a new teaching with authority not only the teaching but he's commanding demons and they're listening to him and Jesus' fame starts to spread. You could imagine one of the, you know, the, the people that are there, one of the leaders of that synagogue probably got out his feather pen and, and some ink and wrote down on a scroll and sent off to Jerusalem to somebody who worked to somebody who worked for somebody in the Sanhedrin saying, there's something going on here. There's this guy here in Capernaum and he just exorcised a demon and he's teaching like no one I've heard. And then in Mark 2, we have Jesus forgiving sin. Right. You remember the guy that his friends bust a hole in through the roof and they lower him down? And Jesus looks at him and he says, and he sees his faith, the, the, the paralyzed guy who can't walk, he sees his faith and he says, your sins are forgiven. And there are scribes, there observing all of this, probably because they've been hearing that Jesus' fame was spreading and maybe Jerusalem had said, go and check this guy out. And so they hear Jesus forgiving sins and they say to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knows that they're thinking this or saying this to themselves. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. And I did just that. And in fact, I'm gonna get him to stand up and walk. And so he heals the guy and he stands up and he walks out of there on his legs with forgiven sins. And you know, one of these scribes picked up his pen and his ink and he sent back to to Jerusalem saying, there's this guy here who's claiming to forgive sins. Only God can do that. And he's making people walk too. Then in Mark 20... Uh, Mark 2, 23 to 28, you have Jesus and his disciples. They're walking along um, picking grain from a wheat field and eating them on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do this according to the tradition. And so the Pharisees come and say, what are you guys doing picking grain on the Sabbath? We remember this. Pastor Chris spoke about this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath is what Jesus says to him. And then he says, so the son of man is Lord of even the Sabbath. So that's some examples of authority, the authority that Jesus had. But that's not specifically what the Sanhedrin is talking to Jesus about. Today, they're talking about him going in to the temple, in their house, getting involved in their business and preaching Isaiah 56 to them. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, and you have made it a den of robbers. They weren't so interested in Jesus' miracles here or his exorcism of demons, or making people walk, or healing people of leprosy. What they're saying is, who do you think you are, Jesus, to come into our temple, and shut down our business, condemn our practices, and then quote this prophecy against us? Who gave you the right, the authority to do this? And they'd already made clear back in Mark two twenty-two when one of the scribes had gone, uh, gone to Capernaum, and uh, and, and said that Jesus was exercising demons because he himself was possessed by Beelzebub. And it's by the prince of demons that he gets his authority, that he casts out demons. And so that's, that's their stance. And so they're asking Jesus, who gave you the right to come into our house and to talk to us about our business? And the answer, in verse 29, Jesus says, Yahweh, my father. And you guys are like, no, he doesn't. That's not what it says in the scripture. But let me show you why I'm saying that. So, Mark 29:30, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So, this may seem evasive, but it is not. Let me show you why. This counter question is actually um, an inference. So, Jesus is saying, first, before I answer that question, we've got to take a step back and talk through what you've heard about when John the Baptist baptized me in the Jordan River. Because whatever you believe about that, and John the Baptist's baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, that is foundational to how I'm going to answer this question. We can't move on until we've dealt with that. So, my answer is... So that my authority doesn't flow from the, the, the school of, of um, Shammai or Hillel, which was the, the religious schools of the day. My authority, Jesus is saying, doesn't flow from this temple authority that you, the Sanhedrin, are involved in and oversee. That's not where my authority is coming from. Jesus says... You've heard the stories and you know that most everybody here, all the people that were watching, believe that John the Baptist was a met- messenger prophesied in Malachi. Malachi 3.1, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare, uh, prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And Jesus says, you've read the reports and you've heard the stories of when John baptized me. Yeah, and then when I came out of the water, you know, you got the scroll alerting you to this, that the heavens broke open and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Jesus, you are my beloved son. And you've heard that the spirit came down on me like a dove. Hundreds of people saw this. I know you've heard about it. What do you think about that event? Was it from man or was it from God? So let's try something. I'm gonna take some liberties here. Let's get our imagination flowing. Imagine you are one of these scribes here asking Jesus these questions. And one of your boyhood friends is from the Jordan River. Actually, that's where you're from. You're from the Jordan River back when you were a kid. And now you've moved to Jerusalem and, and you've been studying your whole life, and now you are a scribe. And your friend, every time he comes into town, you know, he stays at your house for the festivals. And uh, this, this guy, this friend of yours, um, he was there when Jesus was baptized. He had heard of John the Baptist, he's like, this guy eats locusts and honey, he's wild, he's crazy. I went to go, you know, see him a few years back and it was some sort of a marvel. I heard this voice, it came from above me or like all around me, the scribe's friend is telling the story. It was like a deep, sweet voice. It wasn't loud really, but it was just everywhere. And also he would add, then this little flapping fiery apparition like a spirit came down and rested on this guy, his name was like Jesus or something like that. Apparently this guy's from Nazareth. And then this guy started to like glow and he got up up out of the river and I was going to try to track him down to talk to him, but he just like disappeared in the crowd. It was a wild sort of event. Scribe, my friend, what do you think of this? So, this was with your friend. So you've, he's told the story a handful of times, because it's been, you know a number of years since Jesus' baptism till now. But here you are now this day with your peers. They're not even really your peers, because you've just recently been, been brought into the Sanhedrin, uh, which is what you've worked your whole life towards. It's the pride of your parents. They talk about it to everyone that they meet. It's the pride of your wife. Your kids were just accepted into the very best school there in Jerusalem. Tuition paid in full, free, because you were part of the Sanhedrin. And your salary, oh man, it's more than you've ever dreamed. And you're just getting started. And last night, you and your peers, the Sanhedrin, you guys have devised this plan to catch Jesus the next day, to get him to say something blasphemous and arrest him. Better yet, maybe we could get him executed. He's a threat. Everyone agrees. That morning you go into your office and there's a memo saying, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he stopped in the temple yesterday and he shut down business for an entire day. Revenues are down. But even more importantly, the crowd seemed to sympathize, especially those foreigners. So something has to be done. And you're there in your office and then 10 minutes later, your boss comes in. You know, yearly evaluations are coming up, by the way. And he comes knocking on your door and he says, it's time, Jesus has been spotted, let's go. And you and a dozen or so folks follow some secretary out and now you're, you're there in the temple and you see Jesus. You find him. Others take the lead. You're kind of standing at the back, you know, in the periphery. And your boss hurls the question that you guys had debated all night. Sure to catch Jesus. The trickiest one you could think of. And then Jesus, with unflinching eyes, looks out, looks out at you guys and he says, almost kindly, yeah. Yeah, I'll answer that question if you answer one of mine. And then as his eyes are, you know, jumping from everyone around, it seems to stop on you. His eyes stop on you even though you're, you're in the back of the, of the group. Almost smiling, inviting eyes. No hate, no anger. Almost like a genuine question. And he says, what do you think about the baptism of John? You know he turns his head just a little bit and you get a tug on your heart and you look at the guy who's next to you and you look to see if he recognizes he's Jesus is looking at me but that but your friend doesn't seem to notice maybe Jesus isn't looking at you maybe you're just imagining it all but the hustle and the bustle of the temple just fade away and for a moment your thoughts go back to your friend it's the craziest thing I've ever seen you remember him saying what do you think about all of this but you've never considered it I mean, you couldn't consider it. You knew that even an inkling of support for Jesus as a part of the Sanhedrin would cost you your position that you've worked your life for. You know, you just bought a new house. You couldn't go without the salary at this point. Your kids would be kicked out of school and your father's proud eyes, what would they think of you? You couldn't consider it. It was too much of a risk. You needed that seat at the power, at the table of power. But then, before you realize it, the whole delegation is huddling. You know, they hadn't, you guys hadn't prepared for this counter question. They're all talking and whispering, what are we gonna go to, what are we gonna say? If we say from heaven, your boss says, if we say from heaven, it'll appear that we're agreeing with Jesus, that we support him, and we can't arrest him after doing that. But if we say from man, well, I mean, look at all the people that are here. You know, they're here for the festival. They believe John was a prophet. We can't say that. We can't answer. We can't answer. We'll have to try again later. And there's an instant when your mouth starts to open and your hand starts to shake and you're thinking, how can I say this and not be ostracized? What if it was from heaven? What if the stories are true and Jesus really is the Messiah? What are the implications of that? But you're too slow. Your boss turns around and he says to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus looks right past your boss, right at you, And he shakes his head and he says, well, I can't answer you then. I mean, we can imagine that. Who knows what really happened? But here's something that we do know. These are real people with real stories in real lives, and Jesus is there talking to them, answering their question. And what Jesus is saying is, God the Father gave me the authority to do this. God the Father, whom I stood next to at the beginning of creation... He's giving me the authority to do this. And he's telling the Sanhedrin delegation that if they would seriously consider the truths of this, that his baptism, God from heaven spoke to the crowds and said, This is my son. And that John the Baptist was the messenger. And that Jesus is the Lord whom they seek. And he has now suddenly come into his temple. If they seriously considered this, instead of clinching to their power, protecting it, if they would only repent. And submit to Jesus' authority, you know, they would turn and be forgiven. But they weren't willing to do that. So let's read the story. This is what's a- what actually happens. In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. If you answer, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, so a couple of things. In verse 31, that word discussed. So when that word is used in Mark, the Greek word is used in Mark, it's always used when people are trying to evade, um, evade the truth of what Jesus is asking them to consider. This is showing us that the delegation isn't really thinking about Jesus' question about what they think about John's baptism. They don't care about the truth. They're not after the truth. They're unwilling to face the truth or respond to the truth. They don't want to submit to any authority other than their own. That's what's important. That's what's on their mind. James Edwards says, this is a commentator on on Mark, those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. Those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. So there are implications here for us. Have any of us in here yet to confess belief in Jesus? It likely is. Well, we can't wait forever to decide. We can't keep having an an open mind on this question forever. So Mark 1, chapter 1 starts, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners, that our sin was given to Jesus at the cross God's wrath poured down on that covering the payment for our sin then Jesus' righteousness imputed given to us and just as he raised from the dead we will also rise from the dead the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God and then at the very end of Mark or near the end chapter 15 verse 39 the centurion who had just seen Jesus crucified saw the way that he died he said truly this was the Son of God. The whole book of Mark and the whole Bible is saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you believe that, if you haven't really considered it, I ask you to consider it this morning and confess and believe. But we must make a decision on Jesus' authority. He claims to be God's Son, and that John's baptism of Jesus, God the Father made the same, same announcement. The path to understanding Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection cuts through there. It begins and ends with our posture towards that question. Do we sit in judgment or authority over Jesus this morning? Are we the judge of the Bible, the word of God this morning, left to us to determine whether or not it's true? Or is Jesus, the son of God, sitting in judgment over us? And it's two completely different ways of looking at this exact same story. Now, so, say we have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, and we believe in the gospel, and we believe that we're saved by faith alone. And I am one of those that believe those things. But there's still a question for us here who has the functional authority in our life? Is it the Word of God? or is it power, or is it comfort, or is it people? Is the functional authority of my life what you all think about me? Are the people at work what they think about me? Is it wealth? Is it food and shelter? Or is it just acceptance in society? Who has the functional authority in our lives? Is it Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God? Let me, I'm going to quote a little bit from Hebrews in the rest of the sermon. So I'm going to start in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then two chapters later in Hebrews, after going through all of these theological, weighty truths of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is what we do here every Sunday. As we come together and we ask each other, we exhort each other, we encourage each other, take care, lest there be in any of us an unbelieving heart. Because if we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, and I do, then there is treasure that is found in these passages and in the whole of the Bible. Specifically, In regard to this passage, in the theme of the temple, the same temple that the Sanhedrin was holding, clinching power for. So, point number two is the temple. So, if you remember how I said earlier that Jesus was saying to this delegation that the temple would soon have served its purpose and that the final true sacrifice would soon be made this is Jesus the final sacrifice on the cross no longer sacrificing every year in the temple to cover sins just for a moment but a final sacrifice an ultimate sacrifice which is what Jesus did on the cross that a new covenant was coming and that the promise made to Abraham that this blessing would extend beyond just the Jewish people but to the Gentiles to all the nations and that also that the spirit was coming that's what I led with That might not be completely apparent in this passage that we're reading, but it has so much to do with this passage. And let me show you why. Let me show you how. So let's talk about the temple. So the temple represented God's divine presence. It's where God dwelt with man. It was kind of like a a taste of what Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall, when they were with God. That's what the temple represents. But before we even get to the temple, we have to start with the tabernacle you guys might remember the tabernacle it was, the, it was a tent a movable temple before they actually took over the promised land and in Exodus 25 verse 8 this is Yahweh talking to Moses saying tell the people tell, tell, uh, tell them the people of Israel to make a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst so the people start building this temple this, this tabernacle this tent and they put the Ark of the Covenant in there and you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant is where the Ten Commandments is where the Ten Commandments are And above the ark, there's this mercy seat and there's these angels and their wings are touching. Cherubim, they're called. And then in Exodus 25, verse 22, it says, there I will meet with you. This is God talking. Yahweh. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim on the ark of the the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. From there... And the tabernacle is where God speaks to us. Then 15 chapters later, in Exodus 40, they finally get done building this tabernacle. And a cloud comes over the tent of the meeting. This is in Exodus 40, verse 34. The cloud comes over the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I mean, could you imagine that, folks? This whole room filling with smoke so much that we have to get out of here. Yahweh is there. They could see him. Finally, they see him in the tabernacle. Still unapproachable. They can't go near, but they could see him. And then years later, generations later, in fact, Solomon would build the temple. And once it would build, was built, Solomon would get all the elders of the tribes of Israel and they'd all go to Jerusalem. And they would, they would sacrifice, it says, sacrifice more sheep and oxen that could be counted to initiate God's entrance into the temple. And the priests would take the ark out of the tabernacle and they put it in the sanctuary of the temple. And once again, the same thing happens. The place fills with smoke and fire. And they couldn't stay in there anymore. So they all left. And the glory of Yahweh would fill the house. And we sing songs that that talk about what this meant for the people of Israel. Like Psalm 84 20. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. The temple was where God was. A little taste of when we got to walk with him in the garden. They could feel his presence. It was a joyful place. And then in Psalm 48, 69, it talks about this temple being eternal with its foundations and creation. It says, he built his sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever, a forever temple. But wait, wait, God's temple wasn't forever. Ezekiel nine and ten and eleven, Ezekiel envisions God's presence leaving the temple on these on this chariot carried by these four wild, crazy monsters almost. And it leaves the temple. And there's smoke and there's lightning and these wheels and these eyes and it is crazy and it is wild. And then the temple falls. But e- Ezekiel would prophesy uh, about a new temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48, and it was even better than the previous one that fell. But he would also prophesy in Ezekiel 36 about this coming of this Holy Spirit. The temple was rebuilt, and we studied this last year, but the glory that was talked about in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is it's not anything like what this final temple was. This final temple that they rebuilt, the old people that remember the, the temple, they cried. They said, this is nothing like it used to be. It wasn't better, it was worse. And here is where the macro, the macro of the Bible enters into our little story here in Mark 11. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist, and the Lord whom you seek, Jesus Christ, will suddenly come into the temple. And so Jesus has come in to the temple, and he says, Sanhedrin, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, and you have made it a den of robbers. And the Sanhedrin comes out and says, who gives you the right to say this? And the Sanhedrin delegation is asking about authority. So let's take a minute to just relish in not just what gives Jesus the authority to say these things, but what is Jesus saying here? He's building us into a new temple. That's what the new covenant is. That's why we don't need a temple anymore. We don't need temple sacrifices because he made a sacrifice once and for all for all our sins forever. We are perfectly clean, imputed with his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. The same presence that the Israelites saw up on the fiery mountain, saw in the tabernacle, saw in the temple, that Ezekiel saw being carried away by the, the, the four crazy monsters on, the, on, the, on the, the chariot, that same, the presence of that same God is, is in us? I mean, is that true? And after Ezekiel saw God's presence leaving the temple, do you remember this? The valley of dry bones, there's all these dead and dried bones and Yahweh says breathe into these bones and so Ezekiel breathes into the bones and they all stand up and they grow flesh back on and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live," it says in Ezekiel 37:14. "He breathed in us. God breathed into us, God's very spirit, the spirit that was hovering over the waters before God said, "Let there be light. That spirit is in us." Imagine that. I mean, look at the magnitude of it. He dwells here. He's made a home in your hearts. We don't look at some distant mountain covered with smoke to see God. God is in our hearts. But even, there's even more. The curtain that separated the holy from holies, the curtain that, 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 that the, only the high priest could only go once a year and with such trepidation, that curtain is now torn. That white-hot holiness of God, the white-hot holiness of God that would burn up anyone that came near, Christ's holiness has now been imputed to us, and our sin has been propitiated through Christ's death, imputed to us, those of us who are in Christ. God's holiness has been imputed to you if you are in Christ. And this is what Jesus is saying to the delegation. He's saying, please, take a moment to consider what it is that I've been saying. What do you think about my baptism? Was it from man? Or is this from God? Brothers and sisters, what do you think of his baptism? I mean, as I was writing this, you know how Mike said the other day, I, I don't know if he said it here, Mike, who, who preached last uh, last Sunday. I don't know if it was here or at the men's retreat. But he says, we Christians, we say the craziest things. (sighs) So, uh, do you guys hear what I'm saying? I mean, when I'm writing it down, I'm like, do I believe this? And if I believe this, what what kind of majesty is this? This is glory, co-heirs. This is God's glory and this is our glory. Who could possibly dare to believe this stuff? If we're in Christ, if we are in Christ, we can dare to believe it. Remember what Mike preached last week, that during the same week before the crucifixion, you know, he'd been telling the the disciples, I'm going to die. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to die. Okay. You know, like ostrich head in the sand. And then they're finally starting to get it. They're there in Jerusalem. They're getting it. And they're sad and they're scared and Jesus brings them up into an upper room and comforts them and he prays for them and he explains to them what's going on I am the vine you are the branches you remember this last week and he says in John 14 I'm going to ask the father Jesus talking to the disciples John 14:16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, which is talking on the same theme. For through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are no longer Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The same citizens of all of those reformers that we talked about early earlier all of the saints forever for eternity elijah moses david we are there in that cohort we are co-heirs we are all being joined together we're growing into a holy temple in the lord in him that is in christ you are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit So you know what's going on in this passage? At this point in history, the Sanhedrin, they had a a grip on on who was in and who was out. And they had all of their rules and they had all of their books and they were the gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers. You want to get to God? You go through them. And at this point... These leaders wanted to hold on to the power. They wanted to remain the gatekeepers. And Jesus is telling them, it's over. My father has no more need for gatekeepers. Remember the prophecy from Jeremiah? That's quoted in Hebrews. You know, I told you I was going to quote Hebrews a little bit. This is in Hebrews 8. This is actually a quote from Jeremiah. So, Hebrews 8 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. The new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Then, going a couple verses down, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Praise be to Jesus for the cross. They remember our sin. He remembers our sins no more. But then it finishes the writer of Hebrews in speaking of a new covenant he makes first the old one obsolete And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. And here's the thing. I'm up here preaching right now. And that's good. The Bible, it prescribes it. That's why we do it. It's good. It's good that the reformers preached. But preachers are not gatekeepers. It says in Hebrews, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You see, it's not any preacher's words that have power because you see what happens in here on Sundays and what happens throughout the week at our homes, at our dinner tables and in our cars and in our backyard playing with the kids and as we're singing songs and as that spark ignites, it's that God has put his law into your minds and he's written it onto your hearts it is the Holy Spirit who does the preaching it is God directly with whom you deal and it's God directly with whom I deal For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, the writer of Hebrews says. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. There are no gatekeepers. Jesus has made them obsolete. Okay. Oh gosh. All right, the vineyard and the cornerstone. So point number three. Let's walk through this parable. Mark 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. So God plants a vineyard. He invests in it. The people of Israel are that vineyard. And God handed the care of that vineyard over to the religious leaders. Verse two, when the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So once the vineyard started producing fruit, the man sent uh, to collect some of the fruit. Verse three, and he took him This is the the servant that the the owner sent. And he took him and he beat him and he sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So let's read a little bit from Stephen's speech in Acts after Jesus' death. So Stephen, so this is is an Acts. Jesus has died. He's been raised. Pentecost has happened. All right, so... Um, Stephen is speaking to the same group of people that Jesus is speaking to. In Acts 7, 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the one who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's John the Baptist. And you have now betrayed whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That's Jesus. And you who received the law and delivered by angels and did not keep it. So let's, let's keep going. In verse six, he still had one other, so the, the landowner, a beloved son. And he sent him to him saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to another, one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So, a beloved son. Well, we've heard this word before. This is taken, you know, directly from uh, the, the very beginning of, of Mark when, when, God, when Jesus was baptized and God the Father says, you are my beloved son. We've also heard it at the transfiguration when He had James and uh, John and Peter and Elijah and Moses and God says, this is my son, my beloved son, listen to him. So in this parable, sending the servants to appeal to the the landowner was sending the servants to appeal to the integrity of the tenants, but he sends the son to appeal to the right of the law. Other than the father, only the son has legal claim of the vineyard. So James Edward explained it this way: the son goes as the father's representative with the father's authority to the father's property to claim the father's due. And you know what they said? This is the heir, verse 7. They kill the son because they recognize him. They want to rule the vineyard. They want the final say. Just like Adam in the garden who wanted the kingdom without the king. The Sanhedrin wants the temple and the power not to do God's work, not to do God's will, but to decide good and evil for themselves, to be the gatekeepers. As the quote so often goes in the history of the Bible, they did what was right in their own eyes. And another quote from Edwards. If humanity can dispense with God or even kill God, then humanity can become God. What is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God? That's what they wanted. All right, verse 9, and give the other the vineyard to others. So others, this is the, the Gentiles, it was clear to them in that day. And then let's go ahead and and keep reading. In Mark 12, now 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So remember the coming spirit. Remember Jesus promises the disciples the spirit in the upper room and remember Ezekiel's vision of the dried bones being breathed back to life. The the Sanhedrin delegation didn't get it and the disciples, they didn't even really completely understand it yet but they're, they're, they believed it and it did come in Acts, two, in Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples were all waiting for who knows what, they didn't know, but then all of a sudden a sound like heaven, like a, a mighty rushing wind filled the house in tongues of fire appeared and landed on them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit each one himself and each one herself a dwelling place for the spirit of God the same spirit that hovered over the waters at the the point of the creation of the world so we come in here this morning, we who are in Christ, each ourselves a dwelling place for God. We come to him, like it says in 1 Peter, a living stone rejected by men. So we come to him, him, Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God. We come to him, Jesus. Each ourselves is living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. So the honor is for those who believe. So believe, brothers. Believe, sisters, in this wild glory. Don't be like the Sanhedrin delegation here. Verse 12. So they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. They perceived that they had told the parable that he had told the parable against them, so they left and went away. Whatever they believed, you know, whatever positions or principles they had didn't matter. Their posture was based in fear of the crowd, fear and losing their position, their safety. They wanted to be designer Jews just as so many of us currently kind of feel the tug to be designer Christians, living our life as we see fit, as is right in our own eyes, claiming the blessings of Christ while undermining his authority in our hearts. So here's, here's my final thought, and then we're, then we're gonna be done. So th- this is the only parable outside of Mark 4, but in Mark 4, Jesus explains why he uses parables. He said to them, you know to you talking to the disciples has been given the secret of the kingdom of God but for those outside everything is in parables so that you may indeed see but not perceive you may hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven so why didn't the delegation get it you know they understood what he said they seemed to understand they knew that this parable was a judgment against them so let me do a little comparison you remember back in 2 Samuel 12 This is David, King David. David had taken Uriah's wife to bed. A wicked affair followed by a wicked cover-up murder. And Nathan goes to David and he tells him the story, a parable of this rich man with lots of animals, all kinds of animals. And this poor man with just one lamb that he loved, described more as a pet than property. And the rich man takes the poor man's lamb because someone came into town and we're going to eat this guy's lamb because I can take it. And so Nathan says, David, what do you think of this man? And David said, I would kill this man. And Nathan says to David, you are this man. And David heard Nathan and it cut him to his heart. I've sinned against Yahweh, he says. And here we have the Sanhedrin. And Jesus asked the Sanhedrin delegation what should happen to the tenant farmer who killed the landowner's son? He asked them. And actually, in Mark's description of this event, the Sanhedrin delegation itself said we should put those miserable wretches to death. And then they realized that Jesus was talking about them, but they weren't cut to the heart. They sought to arrest Jesus sometimes parables land in the depths of our imagination and they like a fire in our heart and in our souls sometimes the Word of God just lights us up but sometimes parables land on hard cold stony hearts and it does nothing for our souls what's the difference the difference is in our posture in our hearts and minds towards God's authority and God's Spirit flicks the switch sends the spark So let me close with Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The honor is for those who believe, so believe, brothers and sisters, there is no gatekeeper. In Christ, you have direct access to God. Let's stand and pray. Father God, Yahweh, Give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of you. Enlighten our hearts. Let us know the hope that you've called us to, the riches of your inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. Please do this according to the working of your great might, the might that rose Jesus from the dead and seated him at your right hand. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name who is above, who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion whose name is above every name that is named. Amen.